Uh, let's get started in a new message series called I Hate This. It's terrible timing that on such a wonderful day I'm starting a series called I Hate This because I, I didn't hate that, that thing you guys just did. I didn't hate that at all. Um, uh, but uh, it, this is a month that we're supposed to uh, lean into the um, concept and idea and, and obligation of being thankful. And um, most of us try to make a pretty good effort at doing that. But the reality is that you and I go through things that it makes it hard to be in that space and think like that and, and, and fulfill that obligation. It's just hard to really have an attitude of thanksgiving when life can be really, really tough. I mean, really tough. And what makes it tough is different for one person. And there are people who are struggling in our congregation with I mean, real sickness, diagnoses that seem devastating, and, and you go, well, geez, I f- feel terrible because my problem's not that at all, but it doesn't mean that your problem isn't making your life less miserable, and you just go, I hate, I hate that I'm in this. I hate that I'm experiencing this, or maybe you're the spouse of somebody or the parent of somebody or the child of somebody who's going through something and you feel helpless and you hate that they're going through it. There's a movie that I would think everybody knows in here called Star Wars Return of the Jedi in which Emperor Palpatine trying to call and entice Luke Skywalker over to the dark side is trying to feed this thing that Luke's feeling that that feels uncomfortable, and, and he encourages him with this famous line. He says, let the hate flow through you. Like an energy, like a power, let it, let it do something. Use the power of that hate in you because you can add something to it and you can use that hate to conquer. And that's unfortunately what we associate hate with is the dark side right? We're not supposed to feel hate. You know, I hate him. We tell our kids, oh no, you don't ever say that. You don't hate someone. Jesus even said, if you've heard it said, that if you commit adult, uh, that, that uh, um, if, uh, thou shalt not commit murder, but if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. So we go, hate is murder. Well, it is sometimes. Um, hate is used a lot for terrible things, and it motivates people to, to treat others terribly, and, but sometimes hate is not bad at all. We know that because the Bible tells us that there are things that God hates. It lists seven things that God hates. He, everything within him despises those things. So we know that hate can be righteous because it comes from God. Now, I don't know that you and I always distinguish the best use of hate, but there are times that we just feel a thing about a circumstance, about a pain that we're going through. We feel hate, but it has nothing to do with good or evil. It's not good or bad. It's not righteous or unrighteous. It's not wicked or, or good. It's just hate. It's a, it's a passionate, burning dislike for something we can't control that's casting this dark shadow, this coldness over our life. And it's not about good or hate or murder or righteousness. It's just, I hate that I'm in this. I hate that this circumstance 
is in my life. I hate that this pain is in my life. I hate that I'm going through this situation. I hate that, that I'm experiencing this sickness or this diagnosis or this disease, or I hate that I'm suffering or that someone I love is suffering. And that hate feels right. And before you get scared that I'm going to use the next four weeks, 30 minutes a Sunday to beat you up, chastise you, and discipline you for hating, the exact opposite is true. It's right. It's okay, and it's good to feel hate for those things. It's completely natural, and I wouldn't have you change it for anything. But I do want to encourage you that, that uh, Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time and a season for everything in our life, and it actually says there's a time to love and a time to hate. That when we lose someone, there's a time for mourning and a time for dancing. And what I love in, in Ecclesiastes in that passage is that it doesn't say a time to love or a time to hate. It says a time to love and to hate. You can simultaneously have things that you love going on in the midst of things that you hate. And that's what I want to have a conversation about. About how to discover the blessings we love while going through the things that we hate. And David seemed to have captured that. David having gone through pain and rejection and betrayal and literal war and personal battles in his own life, regret and fear and, and, and sin and guilt of that sin and danger and threats to his own life and every other degree of misery, David seems to have found that space in which you can see the goodness of God not in spite of the suffering, but because of the suffering. Not on the other side of the suffering, but in the midst of the suffering. That blessing can be seen in plain sight while you're in the middle of the thing that you hate. Listen to Psalm 23, 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. And he lets me rest in green meadows and he leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along the right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, you've probably heard the King James translation that says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the worst possible valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies and you honor me by anointing my head with oil, which is a symbol of prosperity. Is that it? There we go. Listen and help, oh God, I'm re Nope, sorry, wrong passage. Okay. Um, there, the rest of that passage is not there, so I'm going to read it to you. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemy. You, uh, uh, your, my cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So I love this passage, and here's why I love it, because I realized it has as much to do with death and funerals as 1 Corinthians 13 has to do with marriage and weddings. Nothing at all. Yet some 
lazy pastor or funeral home director hijacked that passage, was like, oh my gosh, the family's getting ready to show up. What am I going to print on their, their bulletins for the funeral? And he found something that said death in it. He did a word search and then he slapped it on there. And forevermore, we've been using it at funerals and it has nothing to do with death. It has everything to do with living with miserable things. And that David finds this personal, deep connection with God in the midst of the pain. You see a shift from the beginning in which David is calling out. It's this sort of disconnected, impersonal, I don't think, I'll say more disconnected and more impersonal where he begins by saying, the Lord's my shepherd, I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me besides peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me, bringing honor to his name. And then when he shifts to, even though I walk through the darkest valley, he begins to say, you, you do this for me and you do this for me and you do this for me and I and you and I and you. He's no longer describing this distant thing that he's learned. He said, this is where I know you best in my pain. And I want to tell you that David was able to find in the deepest of his disappointment, in the deepest of his pain, in the deepest of his terrible circumstances, in the deepest of his misery, in the deepest of the circumstances that caused him to hate his life, he found the best of God and the best of what God could do for him. David saw God, not outside of his pain, but inside of it. He didn't see God in spite of his fears, but he found God in his fears. He didn't run away from his enemies, but he sat down in the midst of them because of God. Now, grab your notes, and we're going to let the hate flow through us, all right? And I'm going to go quick. That's my pastor appreciation gift to you today. I really hate, number one, that there's no path in life that I can take that doesn't intersect with pain. There is no path in life that I can take that doesn't intersect with pain. So shortly after our country was founded and the founding fathers wrote our constitution, Benjamin Franklin famously said, after seeing that the constitution had been established, that he believed that it would endure He hoped that it would, that we would have a a country and and, and a, a unity that would last over time, but he qualified that, and this is the famous part of the quote we all know. He said, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. I hope this lasts. I hope it's a good thing, but the only thing I've ever found that actually lasts forever is death and taxes, and so far he's been right. Seems kind of like a fatalistic and pessimistic perspective. But Benjamin Franklin was on to something that good things are good, but it doesn't mean that they save us from the bad things that seem to endure just as well. Jesus had something similar to say to his followers in John 16:33 when he said this. I've told you this so that you might have peace in your heart, which is a funny thing as he leads in, because of me. While you're in the world, while you're on this side of heaven, you will have to suffer. (laughs) But cheer up. I've defeated the world. Now, Jesus does what we in communication 
uh, call a compliment sandwich. And if you're in management or you have employees, you know what that is. You start off with an affirming, positive thing. Then you punch them in the gut. And then while they're down on the ground, you rub their back and give them another compliment. And you send them out the door. And that was Jesus with his disciples. Hey, I've got great news for you guys. I'm telling you this because you're going to feel a ton of peace after I say it. In life, you're all going to suffer. But don't worry. Cheer up. I'm with you. Now, you and I, just like them, can't help ourselves. We only focus on that middle part because every person I've ever sat with and gave a compliment sandwich to walked out and went and processed with their spouse that I just dumped all over them and I'm mad at them and I hate them and I, they can't do anything right because all we tend to focus on is that painful thing. But I need you to hear this. Jesus made two promises in this. One is, you will not escape pain. You and I believe that if we are clever enough, if we're smart enough, if we're strong enough, if we're strategic enough, we get enough help, we're influential enough, we can escape taxes. If we work out enough, we can escape death. And we think the same thing about suffering, that if I just play my cards right, if I just do things the right way, I won't have to suffer. At least I won't have to suffer as much as everybody else does, or I won't really have to suffer the big, big things in life. The other promise that Jesus makes, though, is you don't have to worry about the suffering because I want you to know that everything that you encounter, I've already defeated those things. So it leaves us with this question, how then do we defeat those things? And the answer is that we understand that blessings come from suffering. Not outside of them, not after them, but because of them. Secondly, I really hate that the things I hate will leave a deeper mark on my life than the things I love. I hate that the things I hate are going to mark me more deeply than the things I love. I've shared some of these statistics with you before in a prior message, but let me share some and see if these don't connect with you on some level. 70% of adults in the U.S. have experienced some sort of traumatic event at least once in their lives. 61 million adults in the U.S. live with some form of disability. One-third of women and one-fourth of men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. About 2.8 million people die each year in America, and they leave behind, on average, five people who are deeply impacted and grieve their death. That means that there are 14 million people added yearly to an experience of deep loss that impacts their life and compromises their emotional and mental health. About 20% of the adults living in the U.S. live with chronic pain. 42% of Americans today in 2022 say they're struggling financially. 15 to 20% of the world's population are like me. They're neurodivergent, and they live with a condition like autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Down syndrome, dyslexia, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, social anxiety, or Tourette syndrome, or any one of the 
other number of things that negatively impact our lives. But no matter what the source of your trauma, your pain, your discomfort, even if you personally caused it, because let's be honest, there are a lot of things outside of our lives that impact us negatively, and then there are things that we created. Trauma, pain, consequence, we're living with that. I've sat down with couples many times and one of those spouses had done something that betrayed the vows of their spouse, of their marriage, and they, I see them in their pain. And I have to be honest with you, this may sound terrible, but I feel a deeper sense of compassion for the one who offended than the one who's offended because everyone's going to be in that person's corner who was offended, who was betrayed. Everyone's in their corner. And this person who was the betrayer, they're going to go through that alone because nobody gets behind them and goes, good for you. That was the right thing to do. And so I think how miserable for them, they're going to have to go through this all alone. And sometimes it's not that kind of betrayal or that kind of sin, but we sit alone in our mistakes. But I want you to hear this. No matter what it is that causes the pain, the reality is it's going to mark you differently and more permanently than anything in your life that you love and enjoy. We know that actually scientifically that you won't just change emotionally because of trauma in your life or pain in your life. There are physiological changes. You begin to get rewired when you go through trauma. There are chemical and hormonal shifts that happen in your body. Your body says, I don't ever want to go through this again. And it begins to build mechanisms to protect you. And so you and I will work really, really, really hard to not go through pain again. And I want to tell you, just because you are a believer and a follower of Christ does not mean it's any different for you and I. Pain still hurts. Trauma still impacts. Misery still leaves its scars. Listen to some people who were godly men in the Word of God and listen to their pain. Job 10.1 says this, I can't stand my life. I hate it. I'm putting it all out on the table, all bitterness, all the bitterness of my life. I'm holding back nothing. And he begins to lament to his friends and to God, and he can't get in his head why in the world he's lost what he's lost. Listen to what David, who we just read his prior psalm, but listen to what he says here. Listen and help, O God. I am reduced to a whine and a whimper. I'm obsessed with the feeling of a doomsday. These are men of God who placed their faith in God, who were righteous men, who could not stand the place that they were in. Listen to Jeremiah, who was a prophet, in love with God, passionate follower, a righteous man. And he's got a problem with God's handling of his misery. I don't understand why I still hurt. I don't understand why my wound is not cured and I cannot be healed. I think you've changed. You're like a spring of water that became dry, and you're like a spring whose water has stopped flowing. I'm here hurting. That's consistent. You, you're not consistent. God, sometimes you help, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes I hear from you, and sometimes you're silent. That's hard to see. People whose faith is so strong. I've watched it happen here 
when people have lost their spouse, to the pain and the misery and the horror of cancer. And I've watched the impact that that's had on somebody's faith. I've watched in Lisa and I's own life when we left a ministry position to save ourselves, to literally run from that place, pack up everything we've owned, to come back and just be near people that we knew so that we didn't have to go through this misery by ourselves. No job, no security, no safety, no, jo- no, no, no financial security whatsoever and feel 100% alone where I shook my fist at God and said, just like Jeremiah, buddy, you've changed because you are not what you say you are in the word. And I'm going to tell everybody that. I've seen people's lives so deeply affected by the pain in their life that it makes me wonder sometimes how we're able to hold on to our faith. And then third and finally is this, takes us to our last point, that if we're going to go through trauma and we're going to go through pain, it feels like we might want to re-examine the relationship that we have with it. That there might be something we're missing inside of it The reason that it might impact us so deeply and that the scars and the pain and the trauma are the only thing that we can remember is that we might be missing the things that are scattered all along the road, not hidden to us, but that we're blinded to because pain can be blinding. Um. A couple weeks ago, uh, I was meeting, I do a, almost all my meetings over at Beach Hut Deli. It's because they have soda and tea there and I don't like coffee. And so people are like, can I meet you at Starbucks? I was like, nope, but I'll meet you at Beach Hut Deli. Um, unlimited Diet Coke. And uh, I happened to be meet, meeting with a lady in the church and she was sharing some stuff and <clears throat> conversation had gone on 30 or 40 minutes. And uh, I got up to get a refill, and we were at a table uh, right by the door that goes out to the patio, and so the soda machine was not far off. And I walk up, and I refill, and I come walking back. And as I'm walking back, the table and the person I'm meeting with is to my left, and the back of the restaurant's here, and a lady is, a little lady, um, about this tall, and she couldn't have been more than 100 pounds, maybe. And I'd say she's in her early 60s, and she starts walking towards me, and um, I thought she knew me because she's kind of reaching out towards me. And, and I smiled, and she mouthed the words, I'm choking you. And I go, you're choking? As if she could answer me, right? I just want to get the interview right here. I set my soda down, and I turn her around, and this is horrible. First thing I thought is, if I break her ribs, she's going to sue me and I'm going to lose everything. And I thought, how Californian are you right now that you're just thinking about lawsuits? And I just said, are you ready? And I started to give her the Heimlich maneuver and I did it about five times. And I was, because she was small and shorter, I was literally lifting her off the ground and her abdomen was rock hard. Um, all of her muscles had tensed up. She was in that moment 
right? She could not think about her kids, her grandkids, her taxes, her car payment, Christmas. She was thinking about surviving this. And I'm going to be totally honest with you. I wasn't thinking about anything else but saving her. I set her down and she just shook her head no. And I turned her back around and I thought, well, you're going to have to go for it and you might break a rib, so just go. And I pulled harder and, and I did it about five more times and I still heard nothing from her. I set her down and I'm looking at her and she's dead silent and there's turkey and tortilla on the ground. <laughs> and she just said, thank you. And goes and sits down. And I sit down. And the lady I'm meeting with goes, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to need a minute. I'm, I'm, there's, there's a lot of, I just got an adrenaline dump. And I don't think I'm going to be able to focus on our conversation for a second. Because I'll be honest with you. When you're in it, you can't see anything else. But I'm telling you, if you and I can refocus, we're going to see that we are surrounded by blessing. Third and finally is this, I really hate that the best of life usually comes from experience the worst of it. We've become as people wired to re, uh, survive. Our brain tells us that pain is bad and pleasure is good. And so we are conditioned to run away from any form of pain or discomfort and chase after every form of pleasure and convenience. And if you don't believe me, you haven't lived in America very long. And if you don't believe me, you don't really watch how those who are impoverished and in pain flee their pain and discomfort and try to come to places like America where they might be able to find less pain and discomfort. But there's a foolishness in us that believes that if we buy enough things, we live in the right places, we go to the right church, we pray hard enough, or we read our Bible long enough, or we get into the right study that we're going to be able to avoid pain. It simply doesn't work like that. Not only does it not work like that, we're going to miss out on the blessings, the growth, the experience of maturity that comes only because of pain. Listen to what James says in 1, 2 through 4. He said, don't run from tests and hardships, brothers and sisters, as difficult as they are. I get it. They're hard. You will ultimately find joy in them. If if you embrace them, your faith will blossom under pressure and teach you true patience as you endure. And true patience brought on by endurance will equip you to complete the long journey, cross the finish line, mature, complete, and wanting nothing. James sends this encouragement of I get it. Life is super, super hard. Remember, he was talking to people who were oppressed by the government on a level you and I have never experienced in America. A pain, 
of becoming followers of Christ and abandoning their former way. Judaism didn't disappear. Christianity was born out of Judaism, and so every Jew believed they had betrayed their faith. Marriages were falling apart because of it. Families were being divided because of it. Friendships were broken up because of it. Persecution was happening in their life because of it. And James said, don't run from it. Embrace it. You're ultimately going to find joy. And can I tell you the part of the story that maybe I don't always get to when I shook my fist at God and I said, I am going to tell everyone you were the one who forsake us and left us begging for bread in the streets, that you're a God who doesn't fulfill your promises, that the patience of God and the love of God and the compassion of God was there all along and he didn't withdraw it from me because I was a spoiled, entitled, hurting child. He fulfilled his promises and things began to change even within months of that spat I had with him on the driveway. And God added back to us not only the blessings that we had lost, but multiplied them tenfold. You see, I look back and I feel shame for the way I talk to God, but I will tell you this, I was never more honest with God than I had been in that season. I never talked to God more than I did in that season. It was a lot of yelling at him. It was a lot of cussing at him. It was a lot of telling him how much I hated what he was doing in my life and how much I felt betrayed by him. But I was talking to him more than I ever had. There's a book... um, by a guy named James Fowler called The Seven Stages of Faith, or Stages of Faith. And it actually uh, talks about it from a psychological perspective. And um, it's interesting because, you know, our faith has grown from childhood. We, we're infants and we just don't know anything. And so our faith is what can be seen right in front of us. And then we get into this early childhood thing, this sort of mythological faith where it's Santa, the Easter Bunny, Jesus. They're all, they're all things we can't see but we're told are real. And then we evolve into the faith of our parents or our culture and we adopt that. And we live within what we are told our faith should look like. Much of what we talked about in the last series came from what I had been told sin and grace looked like. And then there's this stage in which all of that gets disrupted. Trauma enters your life. And it doesn't reconcile with this faith that you've grown, that you've been handed down, that you've built in this tidy box where it all fits perfectly in there. And it blows that up. Then there's a stage of faith in which um, a friend of mine who's a therapist calls it um, heroin needles between the toes and neck tattoos where you just go full-on rebellious, and you're just like, I hate God, I hate Christians, I hate all of this. And then the stage of faith that follows it is this liberation of where you and God are closer and more connected, and people from the box faith, they're really uncomfortable with that because they don't like, like the conversation we had last month, people don't like that conversation because it takes us out of the narrative that makes them feel comfortable. And I want you to not go through pain. I want that for you. I don't want you to experience pain or discomfort, but you're going to. So like James, 
I want to encourage you that you cannot wait for the pain to be over and then experience the blessings of God. The blessings of God are inside of that because you become transformed and changed. You're either going to do one of two things. You're either going to work hard. You're going to work one way or the other. I tell people this when they come into my office and say, I think we're going to get a divorce. And I go, yeah, totally. It's completely legal. It's expensive. It's going to take about six months in California. So all I'm going to ask this is that the next six months, you're going to, you're going to go, trust me, it's hard work to get divorced and it's hard work to stay married. You're already married. You might as well put the hard work into staying married. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to save you a ton of money. So do the hard work and stay married and don't get divorced. And a lot of times that works. Um, it's, a one, it's one of the few things in California I think is admirable that they just go, yeah, we're going to give you a six-month cooling off period. You can't, it's not going to become final. And it's saved marriages that seek help. And I'm going to tell you, in your pain, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to work really hard to avoid the pain and escape the pain and shorten the pain and diminish the pain and, and shrink the pain, and it's not going to work. And you're going to get to the end of it bitter and hurt. And, and then you're going to be, your faith's going to be diminished. Your relationships are going to be diminished. Your mental and emotional and physical health are going to be diminished. Or you're going to put the work into going, I'm here. And this is going to come to an end. All pain comes to an end. It's going to come to an end. But I want to have grown in this. I want to have developed and changed, and I want to be better, and I want to be equipped, and I want to have discovered all the... I, I'm, I'm uh, a, an adult man who still loves to play video games. I have almost all of the systems. I have old classic ones, and I have the new ones as well. And um, I'm impatient. And it'll, I'll get to the end of a thing, and it'll say... Um, you basically completed 60% of that. So there's a bunch more I didn't, and I'll just move on because I want to finish the game itself, not just that section. But it bugs me because I left behind things in there. And life is a lot more important than a video game. And in your pain, there are blessings and growth and health that you are meant to experience that you escape from. The only thing you're escaping is not the pain, it's the blessings and the growth that come from the pain. I'm going to leave you with this last passage. Paul says this in Romans 5, 3 through 5. We also celebrate the seasons of suffering. It's great to celebrate pleasure and joy and increase, but we also celebrate this because we know that when we suffer, we develop, we grow endurance, which shapes our characters. And when our characters are refined, we learn what it means to hope and anticipate God's goodness. I love that. And hope will never fail to satisfy our deepest need because the Holy Spirit that was given to us has flooded our hearts with God's love. You want to know how to see God in the middle of your suffering? Then suffer well. If you want to find God in your pain, then learn how to attune and affix your radar to the presence and the blessing of God by increasing your hope. When you're in pain and when you're in suffering, you go, oh, I hate this. 
I absolutely hate this. I hate this, but there is something that I'm going to love that will come out of this. And instead of trying to escape the thing that I hate, which I don't have the power to do, I'm going to instead increase my faith and my endurance and my patience and my trust in God so that my character grows, so that I am constantly the person that experiences pain differently than the people around me. It doesn't mean that the thing you're going through isn't horrible, and it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to say, I hate this, this is horrible. I hate going through this, but I'm trusting God, and I'm looking for Him at every moment. I hate that you're going through whatever it is you're going through, and I wish I could stop it. Genuinely. If you haven't noticed, I'm a, a, a bit of a crier. I hate it. When I get home, I tell Lisa how I hate it. I hate that I cried today. She always goes, oh, honey, people love it. I was like, no, the women love it. <laughs> They're like, oh, my God, he's so sweet. Look at him crying. <laughs> but I'm an empathetic crier. I've, been, I've literally done funerals in which I didn't know the person or the family. But I'm standing next to the casket, greeting them, shaking their hands as they go through they're bawling, I'm crying too. And I think the family's like, who is this dude? Like he doesn't even know. He was the last minute we caught. I hate seeing people in pain. Don't, please don't cry in front of me. Because <laughs> then we'll both be crying. So when I say I want to end your pain, I mean that sincerely. But I think I would be doing something that would rob from you blessings and growth and development and health and completeness, wholeness that will only come from pain. Does God cause your pain? I don't believe that for a minute. Does God use your pain? Absolutely. He doesn't want to see that moment wasted on you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and I just want to give a prayer on your behalf. God, we are people who hate suffering. Jesus himself cried out to you and said, if this cup can be removed from me, if I don't have to drink this cup of suffering, if I don't have to go to the cross, if I don't have to be tortured and whipped, if I don't have to be crucified, I'll take that option. But not my will be done. Your will be done. And God, I want to see your will in the midst of our pain. But we can't receive it, experience it, encounter it if we run from it. If we take all of our creative energy emotionally, spiritually, and physically and put it into ending the pain instead of discovering you, we'll escape it and we'll miss it. We'll get to the end of that section and it'll say 60% complete and we'll have left behind things that we were meant to experience. So I'm praying that we become better sufferers, that we continue to hate what we're in, but discover the things, the blessings, the favor, the addition to our life that we will love because of the pain that we're in. It's that simple. Help us be better sufferers. In Jesus' name, amen.